Welcome to the podcast. And thank you guys for being here. Sacred reading at Brandon High School. I am Mrs. Huff. We are reading The Nickel Boys. And today with me is Mrs. Jackson. Uh, how have you been liking the book so far? I've been enjoying it. It's been really very intense and pulling me in. Like it's, it's one of the hard ones to put down. Yeah. And I think that the way he writes is so interesting. It's always clear what's going on. It's not like there's lots of flowery descriptions all over this book. No, but it's enough to actually build a picture in your mind, which I really appreciate. He's actually very, very candid in what he writes. And I actually have Googled some of his other books I want to like pick up and take a, take a read now when I have some time this summer. The one that won the Pulitzer, the Underground Railroad, we have in the library. Ooh, maybe I will go check it out. I do find it interesting, though, that while it's uncomplicated and easy to understand text, there's a lot of meaning in short little phrases. Much like when I talked to Mr. Thompson earlier, there was just this one little phrase about the fact that the boys called the punishment shed the White House because the name fit and how many layers of meanings that has. So I've, we're in the same situation today. Again, we're gonna use Lectio Divino. So for those of you who don't know or don't remember, that's our four-step process where we pull out a quote we wanna talk about, and then we say literally what's going on in the book right now, allegorically, um, what is this like in society or in another text? Personally, how is this like something in your life? And a call to action. What are we called to do from this? So our quote this time comes from page 118, which is in chapter 10. Correct. And it says, it says, um, during his time at Nickel, the Mexican boy sidestepped the squabbles that embroiled the rest of them. The uncounted disputes over psychological turf and endless encroachments, his constant dorm reassignments notwithstanding, Jamie kept a quiet profile and conducted himself in accordance with Nichols' handbook's rules of conduct, a miracle since no one had ever seen the handbook despite its constant invocations by the staff. Like justice, it existed in theory. Okay, so literally, what's going on in the text here? Who's Jamie? What are they talking about? Oh, Jamie is a character who his entire time in Nickel, he's been like a good boy. So they, they talk about his like, his beginnings and he was, um, his dad was a traveling salesman and he lived with his mom and never met his dad. He didn't get in a lot of trouble. He didn't go to school all the time and he didn't really get in a lot of trouble. But then he, he did something standing up for one of his friends and he was the only one that got caught out of the group. So everybody else got away but he got snatched up and now he's at nickel because of that. So it talks about his background and how despite being in nickel and being stigmatized by being in the school, he didn't fit that persona of what they expected of someone to be in that school because he stayed out of trouble. He'd always been good, except yeah. in this chapter where it seems like he's on the precipice of making a decision that is not inside his, his normal role of how he acts. Yeah, they say, interestingly, you know, they talk about him bouncing back and forth, and perhaps he has stayed out of a lot of trouble 
because they make him move around so much that he's Mexican. And so they can't figure out if he belongs in the white camp or the black camp. And the school people keep changing their minds. You know, they, some days they seem to think um, that he can't possibly be black. And so they put him with the white kids. And then they think he's too dark skinned to be that good. And they move him down and, you know, all of the horrible racist connotations with that. But because he moves around a lot, he doesn't have enough time to get in fights and squabbles and things. And he's just attained like the highest rank he's about to graduate when they start talking about this plan to potentially poison somebody on the staff. Interesting too how they talk later in the chapter about his way of saying, no, I didn't do anything, even though people don't believe him with his very stoic face. Right. So if you can't really read his face, even though everyone's like, hmm, are you sure? So that's the literal what's going on here. But when we start to look at it allegorically, I really want to talk about the fact that he says, you know, the handbook, he abided by the handbook, even though like justice, it existed in theory. That's kind of where I want to focus when we talk about allegorically what this means. So as we think about in society, where is justice a lot more allegorical than really written? And I think there's a lot of times that we see that. There's a lot of like group norms that don't really exist on paper. People who um, get treated differently. You know, I have I have friends who talk about um, the fact that they have been pulled over while driving uh, that are African American and. Um, they've used the flip phrase that, you know, sometimes they get pulled over for very minor things, mostly because uh, they feel because of the color of their skin. And that that's something where, yes, it's absolutely true that we should all use our turn signals, but not using a turn signal is not usually something you get pulled over for. It's usually something you get pulled over for if the officer pulling you over is looking for something. And so I think the justice existing in theory is a lot like that. What about you? Yeah, so this makes me think about the whole theory of innocent until proven guilty. But once somebody says that you do something, even if it's proven that you didn't do it, somebody might still have some inkling in their mind about, well, somebody thought they could in the first place, so maybe they are still able to do that. So even though you could be like acquitted, it would still tarnish your reputation. So that's that's where I related it to. Sure, if it gets national attention, national news, or even you know gets you famous in your local little town that you're on trial for something. If you didn't do it, it doesn't really matter. Everybody thinks you did. You have to pay so much money to fight the charge. I was listening to a podcast about our legal system. Uh, it was a lecture from the New York Public Library, and the they were talking, the two women who were there were talking about the number of times that people just plea and what they plea bargain for and why they do it, because there are plenty of people who can't afford, it's like, to, to go to trial, because the um, the trial judge often seems... It, 
sees it as like a trial penalty. Or like I'm offering you this great deal, you know, but if you make me go to trial, then I'm gonna try to get many, many more years on your sentence. I think that your crime deserves five years and I'll offer you three if you take the deal. But if we go to trial, I'm gonna try for 25 to life because it's this trial penalty that you're gonna make me do all this extra work for. And so then a lot of times we end up with people who take deals because the amount of money it would take to go to trial and because of the penalty of what they might end up getting if things don't go well in the case, that stakes are so high that they just end up plea bargaining and then forever they have to put the felony on their record and and there are lots of people who are in jail who discuss this this plea bargain penalty and, and that they would have loved to have fought in court and didn't have the resources. Along with that too, it's like on a, a smaller scale, like you said, with, with the community, it doesn't even have to be a community. It could, it could be a social circle. So if somebody does something in, in your group of friends and you accuse them, even if it's proven that they don't do that, like, you know, it could still raise some flags in that social circle. So basically making statements against anybody could be a way to tarnish their reputation in someone's mind or, or have somebody think that they are capable of doing something because it was thought at one point. Um, also with that, with the whole theory of justice, it reminds me of how um, if somebody does do something and then they, they, they do their time, people can think that, all right, well, they did it once, they can do it again. So even though in, in the eyes of the law, they have already like fulfilled their, their obligatory penalty, people can still be like, well, they did it once, they're gonna do it again. So it's, it's not, actually clean slating anything yeah why are we putting people in jail what is our theory here is this a punishment for the crime or is it for rehabilitation and if it's a punishment then how are we helping people to not do it again and if it is a rehabilitation then do we give them another chance when they get out and what does our society really do when people get out of jail and how you know, how hard is it for people to climb out and not go back and not be repeat offenders? Are we really serving justice when we sentence people to jail? Well, along with that as well as like, you know, with the rehabilitation aspect, you know, when you're actually out then and then you're trying to move forward with that clean slate and, and find jobs and everything. Once you have that record, it's harder to go ahead and, and get jobs. So it's, it's again, like a punitive manner. It's like a mark a stigma that follows you forever. Yeah, my other brief allegory is to fiction, um, to Orange is the New Black on Netflix, which has plenty of things not safe for work, and I don't necessarily recommend that students go watch it. However, there is a scene where there's this girl who is getting out on parole, and she was a foster child and a ward of the state, and she was running the library in prison and she really was a good prisoner uh, and didn't get in trouble much like jamie and so she's getting out on parole and she gets out but she has nowhere to live because she doesn't have any family and she doesn't have a job and no one will hire her because she's a criminal and she has that on her record and she bounces from place to place and is sort of like in the corner of somebody's house for a couple of nights that might have been a cousin 
and it's just so hard for her to even find somewhere to sleep where she feels safe enough to close her eyes that she winds up intentionally violating her parole to get sent back to prison so that she can be somewhere where she feels safer again. And how Mine's is that? a movie justice? I watched recently like that too, where, where he just couldn't get a job. Nobody would hire him based on the, the fact that he was once a, a con man. He would always be a con man. I don't remember the title of it. I'm really bad. <laughs> it was on Netflix. Sorry. We're all watching a lot right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so as we think about this personally, I look at more students that I know, and you mentioned circles of friends. I know when I was in high school, I remember um, my group of friends getting in an argument stupidly over a boy. And I know that that ousted somebody in the friend group. And I don't think there's justice there. That was just a stupid argument. But personally in my life, that was, that was kind of a, a hard thing because it happened my senior year in my close group of friends. And, you know, when you oust somebody who you've been close with for forever or, you know, get ousted, that that feeling of being the outsider is is hard um, and all over just an accusation that wasn't even true. So where's the justice? And then I also look at our students and I know, I remember my very first year teaching. I had students keep journals. And I was an English teacher and I would put up prompts and you could write anything you want, but you start one entry a week and that's the one I read and responded to. And I had this kid, it was still early in the year and I was learning names. So I called everybody sir and ma'am and he really responded well to that and was kind of like the classroom helper. He would pass stuff out and collect stuff and always volunteered to do things for us. And I just thought he was a really sweet kid. And then I read in his journal, that he was on trial for attempted murder, but that he said that it wasn't him. He was just holding that bloody knife in his sock drawer for somebody else. And that really scared me. And I was hoping that what he wrote in his journal was true, was that it wasn't him, uh, but it scared me for him either way. But I, I thought he was a really sweet kid. And it turns out that he was a sweet kid in my classroom because I had called him sir and he saw that as a sign of respect. And I didn't know anything about him going in. I was a first year teacher. I hadn't asked about him and he was just a kid in my class and I treated him as everybody else and called him sir and he liked that and we got off to a really good relationship. But he got in trouble a lot in other classrooms, had a record a mile long of suspensions, uh, would get in fights, wouldn't do work. And a lot of teachers were like, oh, that kid, that was their response. Well, to me, he was not that kind of kid. In my classroom, he was nice. He was polite. So I wonder about our system in school of punishment and all of that. Does it sometimes get ahead of the kid? Do kids get a bad reputation and then they don't get the same level of justice as others because of our own personal biases? Yeah, that... Um... I'm getting emotional. I'm sorry. Your story brought up a story of one of my students who will forever be one of my hard kids, even though he is no longer walking this earth. Sorry, I'm getting a little choked up. Um, my second year teaching, I had a student that a lot of people cast a lot of um, doubt on for his whole persona, basically because of things that happened outside of school. In my class, he was amazing. I still have a poem that he wrote for me 
he's like, I'm not doing your poetry project. I'm like, come on, you are, you're good at writing. Let's do this. It, he's like, fine, but I'm only doing it because I'm going to make, I'm going to hit all your criteria and I'm going to get an A, but it's going to be the dumbest poem you've ever read. It was the dumbest poem ever. <laughs> I laughed so hard, but it hit every single mark and he got a, he got an A on it. Uh, I still have that in my feel good drawer that I have, but, um, he was amazing. He was such a good kid for me and other people didn't see that because they'd heard about his friends and his family. And so I never had a problem with him and he was amazing. He got A's. Um, about two years after I taught him, something happened outside of school and he, he did not survive it. And it just makes me so sad that like so many people didn't see the amazingness that he had to offer because of what they'd heard about him or the friends he kept. Um, and it really, it hurts my heart, but it is true that people make judgments on you based on perceptions. Um, they don't see the real you um, that you have to offer, but a lot of times it's the, the external part of you that they, they go ahead and judge on or, or, or who you're, you're surrounded by. I know personally, um, my senior year of high school, I had, I had a problem where um, I changed schools halfway through my senior year. And because of that, the new school, they, um, several people, they, they didn't think that I should be there. And um, so I, I felt like, you know, they really were, were against me, which is one of the reasons why I really wanted to work with students in the future, because I, I want to be an ally and I want to help people realize all of their potential that they have. But whenever I'm sitting down with a student, I'm trying to go ahead. Yeah, you did something. You know, where did you go wrong? What could have you have done? And what are we going to do in the future moving forward to make sure this doesn't happen again? So that there's not just something that's a punitive action, but we're going to have a plan of action in case we're faced with this again. So everything should be a growth experience. Um, don't be sorry, be better. Yeah, you know, so I know that in the case of Nickel, Elwood was just sent there based on association. He's African-American, he was in the stolen car. That's it, you're going to, doesn't matter what anybody else says. Justice exists in theory, not in practice. But when we talk more about what we actually see in our lives right now, you know, I have an interesting perspective too, in that a lot of times when fights do occur, Brandon, you guys, when people are separated, will pull students into conference and cool down. And a lot of times that means that you head to the back of the media center to some of my rooms. And so what I've seen is that in practice, we are actually practicing to be better. Like what you said, you stop and you have that conversation. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard Mr. Thompson say to a kid, I pulled you because I don't want you to make a mistake that you can't come back from. I, I need you to talk to me now so that we don't have those kind of consequences. I'm on your side. I, I've seen you pull kids too and say, we need to fix this before it gets bad. Let's just take a time out for a minute. I think that's a wonderful thing as we think about our call to action. The fact that the more we look at people as individuals and not as groups, the more that we stop and talk to them and say what's going on, the more that we look for those signs of, oh, somebody is really angry and about to make a bad decision. Let's figure out why they're so angry 
and see if there's an underlying issue that we can solve in a way that doesn't mean that this kid's about to get suspended for fighting. So I think as I think about a call to action, I wanna be on the personal side of justice. There's not a lot I can do about government and jobs and things, but I can affect change with the kids around me. And I like that we stop kids and try to talk to them. And I wanna do more of that too. When I see a kid who's angry, I wanna figure out what caused that and see if there's a way that we can solve the problem that doesn't get them in trouble. What about you? So my, my call to action would be to be very introspective. Um, think about what you feel and think about how you're perceiving others. Try to give people the benefit of a doubt. Sometimes you hear something and you, you think that somebody means it a certain way when they don't, or something innocent, or, you know, well, I've heard this person does this, but, you know, think about how they, they act with you because sometimes things that you've heard aren't exactly true. And then also think about what you say before you say it. I think one of my, my biggest ones was once you say something and it's out there, words hurt more than people ever realize. So, you know, even take that cool down period to make sure that you, you're saying things that are in fact, what you mean to say and not something that is just coming out because you're angry or you feel hurt or it's reactory because once you say stuff it doesn't come back yeah that's a good one and i hope that more people get recognized for what they are doing now and who they really are than what they were in the past like i love the turnaround students that we do a couple of them are my tas and they're such good kids. And I hope that they continue and get the chance to show the world what good people they are. I'm a big believer in second chances. Don't be sorry, be better. What a great motto. Let's all strive for that. Thanks for chatting with me about this today. I appreciate you doing this with me. And to everybody out there reading, I hope you're enjoying the book. I hope you keep reading. Next time we'll talk about chapters 12, 13, and 14, and I'll see who I can get to do that with me. Thank you, Ms. Jackson. Hey kids, I miss you guys. I miss seeing their faces. Have a good day, everyone.